Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Luhoko, and Msubudi Makura. In our top stories, Lesotho's King Lutia III announces election date. South African court to rule on Oscar Pistorius' appeal and UN launches a multi-billion dollar humanitarian appeal. In economics, South Africa's power grid remains under pressure and in sports news, South African Football Association extends Vera Powell's contract. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. Lusutu has brought forward general elections to Saturday, February the 28th of next year. Government spokesperson Mwaklo Dumpaka announced the State Council's decision during a meeting with the King yesterday. The State Council complies with the Maseru Facilitation Declaration brokered by SADC Facilitator Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. The decision is also within 90 days of the dissolution of Parliament in line with the Constitution of Lusutu. Junior doctors in Sierra Leone have embarked on a strike to demand better treatment for health workers who become infected with Ebola. The association representing junior doctors has asked the government to make sure that life-saving equipment such as dialysis machines is available to treat infected doctors. The government has promised that a special treatment unit for health care workers will open soon. Ten of the 11 Sierra Leonean doctors who have become infected with Ebola have died. Ebola has killed about 6,200 people, including hundreds of health workers, mostly in the West African countries of Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia. And in Zimbabwe, doctors have warned they will embark on strike again if threats to cut their monthly salaries by more than one-third are carried out. The Zimbabwe Hospital Doctors Association says doctors working at an unnamed hospital in Harare have been told that their December salaries will be cut to 100 US dollars from about $283. This is because they took part in a strike over low pay last month. Doctors at state hospitals Hospitals mainly in Harare and Bulawayo went on strike in October. They went back to work to allow salary negotiations to proceed. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority says while it's disappointed with the discharge of Shreen Dwani, it's relieved that it has succeeded in the conviction of three men linked to the murder of his wife Annie. The British businessman had all had all five charges, including murder and kidnapping, in the Western Cape High Court dropped yesterday. They included the orchestrating of his the murder of his wife Annie while on honeymoon in Cape Town in 2010. NPA spokesperson. The judge was very much articulate and did express her reservations about the, you know, the evidence that was delivered in the main 
by the three witnesses, particularly uh, Mr. Tongo. So we are saying that, you know, we accept this decision as much as we are disappointed with it, but we accept it. The state will today ask the High Court in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, for leave to appeal against the judgment and sentence of Oscar Pistorius. The state feels that it's entitled to request that certain questions around the judgment and sentence be reserved for the Supreme Court of Appeal. Pistorius was sentenced to five years in prison for killing his girlfriend, Trevestian Kamp, on Valentine's Day last year. He was found not guilty of murder, but guilty of culpable homicide. Leila Machnes reports. The state is questioning whether the trial judge correctly interpreted the law when she found Oscar Pistorius not guilty of murder, but guilty of culpable homicide. They are also asking whether she correctly applied the legal principles regarding circumstantial evidence. Pistorius' legal team will oppose the application. They are saying the state failed to show any material misdirection in the judgment and that the questions of law raised by the state is actually a factual finding by the judge. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Lesotho's King Lidzia III has proclaimed the date of the country's elections, which have been brought forward. It is Saturday, 28th of February 2015. The decision was reached in a meeting which the, with the country's state council. It complies with the Maseru Facilitation Declaration, brokered by SADC facilitator, South African Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa. Ntakwana Ngatani reports from Maseru. At the beginning of October, political parties signed the Maseru Facilitation Declaration. It was to reopen Parliament and pass a budget to facilitate elections. It was also to close Parliament in early December and hold elections by the end of February 2015. The State Council met King Litsia III to make it official. Government Secretary Moatludim Paga. The Council of State met and did so advice after agreeing on the timetable presented before it by the Independent Electoral uh, Commission of Lesotho. They advised His Majesty and agreed on the, the timetable presented before it and said the date for the elections will be February 28, uh, 2015. The field of election campaigning is now open. Old political parties will face new ones. New and bold ideologies are at play. Lesotho Workers Party has struck an alliance with the movement of Basotho workers in South Africa who want Lesotho to be incorporated into South Africa. Lesotho Workers Party leader Makai Fabili. Workers uh, doesn't know the boundaries. That one should be very, very keen on. They are getting work everywhere in the world. We want the United uh, South Africa and uh, Lesotho being part of this uh, union of South Africa, which is uh, currently uh, running now. So we see no problem with that. You talk about very few politicians who are benefiting for the independence of Lesotho internationally. They enjoy that, but they don't see the, the, the seriousness of the uh, Basotho as a nation, as a whole. The, the issue of the king is not a major problem because the king will still remain a king. 
And uh, you know, in South Africa, uh, the people of Lesotho, when they're illegal to seek for the jobs, are very, very a uh, majority of the Basotho nation themselves. A new party, the Progressive Democrats, is led by Mopato Munyake. Munyake is a former member of Prime Minister Tom Tabani's Obasutu Convention. We are appealing more to the younger generation. We are appealing to the younger generation, people who have not been contaminated by the old politics of this country. Why? Because they lack the necessary uh, uh, instruments to improve in that direction. So they keep their followers uh, focused on the past, on the BNPs and the BCPs and all that sort of thing. You see, for them, it, it's, it's a kind of a turn on. You see, when you talk to a BCP person about BNP, oh, it gets their blood running. You know, it warms their blood up. And the same way, uh, just like the elections that's coming in February 2015, it's really is an election that's going to be fought on that ticket. Don't let the BCP rule this country. Don't let the BNP rule this country. That is the ticket. There's not going to be any issues that they are going to bring forward on the table to address the, 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 the problems that are facing this country today. The election date is within 90 days of the dissolution of parliament in line with the constitution of Lesotho. SADAC facilitator, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, returns to Lesotho on Wednesday to consolidate plans. That report by Ntakwana Ngatane in Maseru, Lesotho. The president of Somalia, Hassan Sheikh Mohammed, Mohamud is expected to appoint a new prime minister next month. This follows the voting out of Premier Sheikh Abdiweli Sheikh Ahmed by Somali Parliament. Channel Africa's James Shimanyula has more. The voting out of the prime minister in Somalia is relevant because Somalia is currently undergoing a political metaphorsis, a kind of political stability with the functioning parliament of 233 members. Smooth parliamentary operation is expected to lead to the 2016 presidential and legislative elections. The voting out of the Prime Minister, which follows a motion of non-confidence in him by a parliament, makes Abdiweli Sheikh Ahmed the second Premier to be removed from power by Somali's August House through a vote of no confidence. Abdi Ainte is an expert on Somalia at the Mogadishu-based think tank, the Heritage Institute for Policy Studies. I asked him to share his thoughts on the parliamentary voting out of the Prime Minister. I guess the political leaders will go back to the drawing board again and try to appoint a new prime minister who will then um, appoint new cabinet. And so we are looking for another potentially protracted political conflict. Expounding on the political process that will follow, now that Somali parliament has voted out the prime minister, Ainte had this to say. Under the constitution, the president has 30 days to appoint a new prime minister, and that prime minister then has another 30 days to form a cabinet. And so um, that's uh, how long it's probably going to take, or maybe less than that, probably less, I think. Disclosing what may have apparently caused the prime minister to fall from power before he was voted out, Ainte said... It was a political dispute between uh, him and the president that was going on for a number of months now. But at the heart of it is a constitutional process. However, Inter did not expand on the constitutional process. Turning to the 2016 presidential and parliamentary elections, 
and what the fall of the Prime Minister signifies, Ainte told me. Well, I don't think elections will take place because we don't have the required uh, institutional uh, systems in place. But I think we are looking at something other than the elections. Rating the threat posed by Al-Shabaab militants, Aite said... Still remain a threat, but I think they are much less threat than they were a year ago. Pursuing Al-Shabaab threat, I put the following question to Aite with Kenya and Somalia in mind because the two nations had been targets by Al-Shabaab in regular attacks that have left hundreds of people killed. Do you think that uh, they may continue carrying out the suicide attacks in uh, Somalia and they continue to attack Kenya as they have been doing? You remember we have had a spate of attacks here. Here is his answer. They will probably continue to mount some of these attacks in the recent months. That was Abdi Ayente, an expert on Somalia, speaking to me from Mogadishu, the capital of Somalia. Somalia has remained in the grip of on-again, off-again violence since the civil war erupted there in 1991 following the toppling of dictator Mohamed Siadibare. Recently, the Horn of African Nation appeared to inch closer to stability with the installation of a new government and the intervention of African Union troops tasked with combating Al-Shabaab militants. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. The number of people affected by conflicts and natural disasters around the world has reached record levels, according to the United Nations. At the end of November, an estimated 102 million people around the world were in need of assistance. On Monday, senior UN officials launched a multi-billion dollar appeal to bring aid to 57 million of the most vulnerable people in 2015. Stephanie Kudrix reports. 16.4 billion U.S. dollars. That's the amount of funds the United Nations has estimated it will need to assist the most vulnerable people around the globe next year. So far, the organization has received $9.4 billion in 2014 to provide humanitarian assistance. Speaking in Geneva, Valerie Amos, the U.N. Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, gave some examples of what the U.N. has accomplished with that money. With that money, we helped to avert famine in South Sudan. We delivered food aid to millions of Syrians every month. We provided medical supplies to a million Iraqis and food to 930,000 people in the Central African Republic. The other major crises covered by the appeal are Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Myanmar, the occupied Palestinian territory, Somalia, Sudan, Ukraine and Yemen. In these countries as well, Ms. Amos said the UN will continue to put people at the center of relief efforts and do everything it can to respond quickly and effectively. If you think about what is happening in those countries, you will see that these are not second-order crises. This is why we say we are facing needs at an unprecedented level. The people in these countries, and who this appeal intends to help, have experienced unimaginable suffering. Millions have been displaced within their own countries and across borders. 
Ms. Amos said responding to people suffering must be a shared responsibility and a collective effort through 2015 in order to close the growing gap between needs and resources. Antonio Guterres, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, launched the appeal with Ms. Amos. He said at the end of 2013, for the first time since World War II, more than 50 million people were displaced by conflict in the world. He said newly displaced individuals, both refugees and internally displaced people, are growing. Growing exponentially. In 2011, 14,000 people per day were displaced by conflict in the world. In 2012, 23,000 per day. In 2013, 32,000 per day. And in 2014, we are sure at the end of the year we will have a much higher number because of what's happening in Iraq. Mr. Guterres said the situation is particularly serious in areas that are what he called forgotten crises, such as the South Kordofan and Blue Nile conflict in Sudan. 200,000 Sudanese are still refugees in South Sudan and remain in need of support from the international community. Stephanie Kudryks, United Nations. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amuka na unai. South Africa's National Prosecuting Authority, the NPA, has defended the costs involved in the extradition and trial of British businessman Shane Devani. Devani was acquitted in the country's Western Cape High Court for the murder of his wife Annie four years ago. He faced charges including murder and kidnapping. Lyndon Khan reports. A four-year battle to find answers for the murder of honeymoon bride Annie Devani has come to an end. Relief for the Devani family, but devastation for the Hindoches, Annie's family, who had waited years to hear the truth about what had happened to her on that fateful night. Nearly two weeks ago, Shrin Devani's legal team lodged a Section 174 application in terms of the Criminal Procedure Act to discharge the case after the state had led evidence for six weeks. A 174 application is done when the defense believes there isn't sufficient evidence to convict. Yesterday, Judge Jeanette Traverso told the court that witness testimony had been contradictory. She said three witnesses linked to the crime, including middleman Monde Mbulombo, had not been credible. Mr. Mbulombo's evidence unraveled during cross-examination. He started to contradict himself on each and every material aspect of his earlier evidence. As his evidence progressed, it became more and more clear that he was deeply involved in this entire incident. In addition, there are stark contradictions between the evidence of Mr. Mlombo, Mr. Tongo and Mr. Kwabe on all material aspects. Traverso said she was doubtful that even if Srindavani had taken the stand, the state did not have a strong case. The law is clear. The evidence of the accused, if he does not incriminate himself, can never strengthen the state's case. Even if the accused should enter the witness stand and is a wholly unsatisfactory witness, I will still be left with a weak state case which cannot, on any basis, pass legal muster. Shrin Devani breathed a huge sigh of relief after the ruling was made and his family members hugged each other. 
Outside the court, the Hindoches said they will never find closure as a family. Ani's sister, Ami Denborg. We came here looking for the truth and all we got was more questions. We waited patiently for four years to hear what really happened to Ani. Unfortunately, we believe that this right has now been taken away from us. That's going to haunt me, my family, my brother, my parents for the rest of our lives. In April this year, Devani arrived in Cape Town on board a private jet following a lengthy extradition process. Justice spokesperson Mtunzi Maga. Part of our undertaking related to him being declared unfit to stand trial, upon which we would then, within 18 months, uh, facilitate his return to the UK. But from now that he was declared fit and stood trial in South Africa, our responsibility ended at the time he was declared fit to stand trial. He will have to see how he gets back to the UK. NPA spokesperson Nati Ngube has meanwhile defended the costs incurred for Devani's extradition and trial. We always allow to the fact that there are two possibilities. Either there's a conviction or there's a picture. But we don't stop to prosecute people because uh, we think that they'll be an acquitter. If there is evidence that we believe uh, is sufficient and credible to take the matter to court, for the court to decide on the, either whether the person is guilty or not, that is our responsibility. We will take the matter to court irrespective, of course, of, uh, of the cost that might be involved. Shrin Devani's family refused to comment on the trial. The state will not be appealing the ruling. I am Lyndon Khan in Cape Town. South African Paralympian Oscar Pistorius is not expected to attend the application for leave to appeal against his judgment and sentence in the High Court in Pretoria. A state will bring the application today. Pistorius' defense team indicated they will oppose the application. Lila Machnas reports. This state is questioning whether the trial judge correctly interpreted the law when she found Oscar Pistorius not guilty of murder but guilty of culpable homicide. They are also asking whether she correctly applied the legal principles regarding circumstantial evidence. Pistorius' legal team will oppose the application. They are saying the state failed to show any material misdirection in the judgment and that the questions of law raised by the state are actually factual findings by the judge. Senior advocate and former acting judge Johan Engelbrecht says he doesn't believe the state will be successful in the application to appeal against the judgment. My personal view is that they will not be successful because they can only appeal uh, on a question of law and this is not a question of law, this is a question of fact. Whether the judge correctly applied the facts and that is not appealable. He also believes they will not succeed in asking for leave to appeal against the sentence. Yeah, we must look at the character of Oscar. He committed a serious offence, that is accepted. But the question is, does he need to be incarcerated for a lengthy period? My personal view is no. Ten months is sufficient to bring home to Oscar the seriousness of the crime. But he holds no or poses no danger for society, so a lengthy period of incarceration is not called for. The state is also asking for leave to appeal against the not guilty finding of the court on the charge of the possession of illegal ammunition. 
The state is saying it must be established what form of fault is required for liability if the court is correct in its finding that the possession of ammunition on behalf of someone else does not constitute the illegal possession of ammunition. Pistorius was in possession of ammunition that belonged to his father. Judge Tukizili Masipa must only decide today whether she is of the opinion that a different court will come to a different conclusion on the same facts. A lawyer, Tiani Bar, says he believes the application for leave to appeal may be successful because of that reason. I feel that uh, the judge might, might be of the opinion that uh, a different court will come to a different uh, decision in regards to the application in regards to Dallas against Wallace. Um, and that, that this will be a, this will form part of a legal dispute, um, which a full bench of uh, judges may hear. The state and defence will only argue why or why not the state must be allowed to appeal against the judgment and sentence and will not argue the merits of the application. The application for leave to appeal will start later this morning. I am Leila Magnus in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka na Unai. Although Africa is currently experiencing a youth bulge, the younger population remains disfranchised in the continent's development. However, the growing number of young people could offer enormous potential gains to the region, but only if their needs and rights are met. This is the message from various development organizations such as the United Nations Population Fund, UNFPA, at the Adolescent Sexual Reproductive Health and Rights and HIV Symposium underway in Lusaka, Zambia. The UNFPA and key partners are reflecting the sort of support needed by the African youth. Channel Africa's Jane Matebula reports from Lusaka. While the numbers of young people are projected to decline in most parts of the world, the population of young people is growing rapidly in Africa. This fact, coupled with declining fertility rates, means Africa has the opportunity to benefit from a demographic dividend. A demographic dividend is a potential economic boom that occurs when falling fertility rates coincide with a growing working age population. However, this can be achieved if there is a response to the needs and rights of young people. Outlining some of the issues that need to be re-evaluated in Africa, a representative of the African Union, Nongule Gongwenya, notes that quality education in the region remains a problem. We need to look into the quality of education, but also not just education for the sake of education, but that kind of education that will lead to jobs. So at country level, we need to ensure that uh, we realign our education system such that it actually leads to jobs. It's not enough anymore to just finish university. What actually needs to happen is that we need to look at uh, other ways of ensuring that young people actually go to school so that they can end up with jobs. Dr. Asha Mohammed is a representative of the United Nations Population Fund. She highlights five key areas which are also a cause of concern if Africa is to achieve a demographic dividend. These are maternal mortality, unintended teenage pregnancy, child marriage, HIV, and gender equality and social protection issues. These are a cocktail of issues where adolescents 
girls, especially issues are health and well-being are actually interlinked and where problems and things not addressed affect the well-being of adolescent girls. I will look at some key challenges and also making a case for investment in, in, investing in adolescents and, and few strategies for action. Africa will not reap the demographic dividend until after 2060 or 63. It will be way after that. If we do something now, however, there is a possibility that we will reap the demographic dividend within the next 30 or 40 years. So what we do now, and that's why the theme of this conference is so urgent, of time to act is now, because what we do now it will determine what happens in, in our countries. African heads of states have derived a number of policies and frameworks intended to deal with youth development. However, the actual implementation of the decisions and recommendations is yet to be realized, as the AU's Nongulegongwenya explains. We have declarations. You just name the issue you have at country level. I can find a decision for you that African heads of states have actually endorsed. The real issue is how are we actually aligning what we're doing at country level with these decisions. For example, we have the Abuja Declaration, which uh, emphasizes on issues of HIV-AIDS prevention, and, and, and we have the Wagadugu Declaration of 2004, the Abuja Declaration is of 2001. The Wagadugu Declaration of 2004 focuses on, on employment, and it has a, a, a separate segment that actually looks into youth employment. We have the African Youth Charter that I've just mentioned of 2006, which again was endorsed by heads of state in 2006 in Banju. We have the Maputo Plan of Action, which looks into, again, health issues. We have the African Union Youth Decade Plan of Action. What happened is that between the year of 2000 Nine and 2018, African heads of state said um, they're dedicating the entire decade to youth development. And uh, there's a program in place that seeks to accelerate youth development in Africa. But are we using those frameworks at country level to actually realize uh, youth development? That's Nongkulule Gongwenya, a representative of the African Union. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Lusaka. Cancer is not a death sentence anymore as we have new ways of preventing it, according to an expert on non-communicable diseases from the World Health Organization, the WHO. Etienne Kruch was in Australia last week attending the World Cancer Congress, an event bringing together representatives of government and organizations as well as medical experts. WHO is highlighting that many of the world's new cases of cancer are occurring in less developed regions of the world, while 30% of cancers could be prevented. Speaking on the sideline, on the line from Melbourne, Dr. Kruch first explained to Stephanie Kutrix where progress has been made. We will come back to the story after the headlines with Anne Musa. Good morning. The state will today apply for leave to appeal the culpable homicide conviction and sentence of Paralympian Oscar Pistorius 
in South Africa's High Court in Pretoria. Junior doctors in Sierra Leone have embarked on a strike to demand better treatment for health workers who become infected with Ebola. And a global appeal for $16.4 billion has been launched by UN humanitarian agencies to help 57 million of the most vulnerable people in emergencies next year. Those are the stories making headlines. Cancer is not a death sentence anymore. We know how to address cancer in terms of prevention, in terms of detecting it, and to some extent in terms of treating it. The problem we see is that there's been huge progress in high-income countries where now a lot of cancers can be addressed through immunization, through addressing tobacco consumption, alcohol consumption, physical inactivity, which are some of the key risk factors for cancers, and also by detecting breast cancer, cervical cancer early on and treating them, for example. The problem is that in the lower-income countries, the progress has not been the same, and we still see a huge toll in those countries, and that's where we need to focus now. How are you tackling that specifically? Well, we're supporting countries in a number of ways. We try to disseminate knowledge We try to change the paradigm also about the fact that cancer is just not inevitable anymore and we know what can be done to address these cancers. And then we're providing technical assistance to countries to help them strengthen their taxation on tobacco or alcohol, to help them set up cancer registries, to help set up uh, screening and detection programs for cervical cancer, etc. What would be the recommendations that you would make to our audience about the life choices that they can make to reduce the risk of certain cancers? A large number of cancers can be prevented by adopting a healthier lifestyle. It's a question of not taking on tobacco and if for those who smoke, to stop smoking. It's a question of uh, conducting physical activity on a regular basis and watching what we eat and drink in terms of alcohol. But also we need to have regular checkups to make sure that, you know, cancers can be caught very early on and therefore through surgery or or other types of treatment uh, are treated early on before they spread. With the development of better healthcare systems in the developing countries, there is a chance that they will also be able to say that cancer is no longer a death sentence, as you're saying, for other more developed countries? Yes, we think it's possible question of political will. It's a question of uh, tackling the issue, addressing it, but it is possible, definitely. And so for those of us who aren't in Melbourne this week, um, what are some of the highlights that you can share with us about what you've experienced so far? Well, first of all, I think a very strong community of very motivated, very knowledgeable people here who who are really driven by a common cause of, of increasing attention to cancer and getting action going. This ranges from, you know, uh, a princess from Jordan whose kid was affected by cancer to a singer who was affected by leukemia to some of the top-level experts from all over the world, South Africa, the U.S., uh, Australia, and many, many other countries. And together, I think that there is a, a real common feeling that progress is happening. We do have ways now to detect a number of cancers, cervical cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, etc., and, and, and to respond to them better. 
The Stop Stockout project in South Africa has raised the alarm over the alleged shortage of essential drugs in the country's Gauteng province, warning that the situation is likely to lead to unnecessary suffering and death. The Coalition of Civil Society Organizations is now calling for immediate action by the Gauteng Health MEC, Kletani Matlangu, to avert the crisis. Channel Africa's Elizabeth Lidicha has more. According to the Stop Stockout Project, or SSP, the vast majority of drugs necessary to treat HIV, TB, mental and maternal health issues still remain unavailable in clinics and hospitals across the province. The SSP says it has independently verified that there's a shortage of about 38 out of the 53 essential medications. Spokesperson for the project, Bella Huang, says this is why they want the issue thoroughly investigated and resolved. The Self-Stockouts project started about a year ago, and patients and healthcare workers can anonymously report about stockouts in facilities all across the country. We've been getting stockout reports from the province over the last year, but all of a sudden, over the last month, we've gotten more and more reports. We tend to usually get reports from patients, but right now we're getting a lot of reports from healthcare workers who are extremely frustrated where they don't have the drugs to give to their patients. Over the last month, we've gotten 53 reports of different drugs that treat patients with HIV, that treat patients with TB, that treat maternal health, that treat mental health, that treat asthma. We wanted to put out this request to the MEC to investigate what the causes of stockouts is before it gets any worse. Huang says while South Africa has made great strides to extend access to antiretroviral treatment as well as increase the quality of the services it provides patients, the hundreds of dollars invested over the years are meaningless if some patients still walk away from a clinic without medicines in their hands. She adds that these stockouts are often frustrating for both patients and healthcare workers. Patients, when they go to the facility, it's already a struggle to get to a clinic. You know, you have to take time off work, you have to have transport money, and you have to acknowledge that something is wrong with you. Imagine when a patient arrives at the facility and there's no drugs available for them for their treatment. They've made it all the way there and they're turned away. That's very frustrating. For healthcare workers, the frustration lies in that there's no communication from either their pharmacy or from their depot about what drugs are out of stock. Clinicians know what drugs are out of stock and how long they're out of stock. They're able to prescribe an alternate drug or give an alternate treatment or have some sort of solution to the problem. Established just over a year ago, Huang says the coalition, which comprises organizations such as the Treatment Action Campaign, Doctors Without Borders, or MSF, and the Southern African HIV Clinician Society, among others, has been instrumental in ensuring regular and uninterrupted supply of essential drugs to patients. What has been happening over the last few years is that we have been seeing more and more drugs being out of stock. I think partly of that is because we're getting more and more HIV patients on treatment. So more and more patients are using the healthcare system and the healthcare system is being more and more stretched and more demands are requested of it. So the project started because Treatment Action Campaign, Clinician Society, Doctors Without Borders, and the Rural Health Advocacy Project all have patients and healthcare workers 
who are working in facilities are being treated in facilities and they are just frustrated with the system. So the project is a way to give voice to those patients and a way to give voice to those healthcare workers. You know, one person alone might feel threatened when they try to resolve a situation on their own on the ground. So as a coalition, it strengthens the voice of the healthcare workers and the patients. Gauteng Health Department spokesperson Prince Hamna was not available for comment. Stories of medical supply shortages have been prevalent and observed throughout health facilities nationwide for years. It is hoped the formation of consortiums such as the Stop Stockout Project is one of the many steps in the journey to monitor and hopefully eliminate stock problems across South Africa's healthcare system. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Elizabeth Lidira in Johannesburg. There needs to be global migration policies which will combat and ultimately eradicate xenophobia and racism. This is what came out of the last day of the 6th Annual World Social Forum on Migration in Johannesburg, South Africa. The event brought together more than 3,000 delegates from around the world to debate on issues related to migration and mobility. For more on this... Khumotsomo Pulani spoke to Rex Ossa, a refugee activist based in Germany. I wanted to talk about the situation of refugees in Germany, practically as it connects to apartheid rule in South Africa, just to make it clear that even in Europe, especially Germany, that has a long history of apartheid connection, that there are still some apartheid rules that exist to discriminate and segregate refugees in Germany. Highlights the practical situation as a refugee in Germany and also to um, analyze some discriminating rules that disconnected with apartheid that have existed in South Africa in the past, that the modern-day Germany practices some kind of segregating rules, rules that put refugees as vulnerable people and as um, second-class human beings in Germany in the so-called um, modern-day democracy. Yeah. And would you perhaps just want to reflect on what it means to be a refugee in Germany? To be a refugee in Germany means um, being a potential criminal because every rule that is implemented, that is enforced on refugees is directed at pushing you into committing some little offenses that makes you that justifies their um, strategy to criminalize you. Like in Germany today, we still experience situations where Refugees are not allowed to go out of a certain jurisdiction except they take permission from the foreign office. This is total abuse of the right to freedom of movement, even within the country, the borders of the countries where you live in. Although in the last years it has been opened a little bit wider to the state level, yes, before now it had to do with within a district. Like if you live in Johannesburg and you are found somewhere outside Johannesburg, you are controlled by the police through racial profiling, which is the order of the day. And finally, you are given fines for it. And if it happens two, three times, then it brings you into the borderline of criminality. You could even be deported. It could be a determinant of your deportation also. Mm. Earlier on, you said that if anyone is to really address the issue or, or, or challenges that migrants face, it's the people themselves who, who are directly involved or who get to experience that, other than politicians. Yeah, so I will. I would reflect back to the podium discussion with the professor who spoke on um, the vulnerability and the visibility of refugees when we tried to apply some 
intended policies or strategies to confront the situation and trying to narrow it down to depending on the politicians because they have the powers. We have the powers because we are the practical victim. We should be the ones to dictate what we want because we have suffered so long and so this is the time we have to take back power. And so we are the only, the best persons, we are the best persons to tell about our situation and to demand what is best for us because we wear the shoes and we know what, where it teaches us. I can reflect back to our situation in Germany. The situations that has changed so far only existed because the refugees took to their hands to be on the street to show the repression of the state and to confront the system of the state to say yes this is what happens and this is what we want so the other, otherwise solidarity should come from the citizens so-called citizens of this country or wherever we live in because as long as we project the rights of refugees and migrants we are indirectly projecting the rights of even the citizens of the country who don't even know their rights and so uh, the fighting for our rights and being in solidarity with us is indirectly even fighting for the rights also because they will be the first set of people to even benefit from even the successful struggle. What sort of recommendations can you really make um, if we are to you know, address issues around migration? I think um, we have a problem also with the society and so we should, like I agree with the fact that yes we need to be more strategic on the grassroots level but the issue is it has to be directed in the way of informing the society exactly on how the situation we face even affects them because a lot of people are not informed. The orientation is very low and so it's the responsibility that we find more strategies to see how we mobilize the solidarity of the people because we are the people and when the people stand to speak against the system, the politicians have no option. They have to concede when we are in solidarity together because we are more than them. That was Rex Osa, a refugee activist based in Germany, talking to Channel Africa's Khumutso Mopulani. He was not there as a father to see us grow up, to give us advice and guidance, but he would do it through letters. Nonetheless, darling, I'm glad to note that you're adjusting yourself and trying to be happy all the same. He never missed a birthday. He would always send you a card with a message. I felt tremendous when I read the lines, a nice place after all. As long as you have an iron will, darling, you can turn misfortune into advantage, as you yourself say. In tribute to our democratic founding father. It's 7.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics update up next with Tabi Soluhoku. South Africa's power utility Eskom Chief Executive Officer Tsiriso Matona says that the power grid will remain under extreme pressure for the next few months. Matona briefed the media in Johannesburg yesterday. Eskom implemented Stage 3 of load shedding over the weekend. Yesterday, the power utility implemented Stage 2 of load shedding as three of its generators are out of operation. Matona has warned that diesel reserves are expected to start running low by Thursday again. The problem now is the availability of diesel. We've successfully recovered our dam levels and partially uh, recovered our diesel levels. Although they're not at the ideal level, we think we have enough to be able to cope for at least most of this week. And then, of course, we'll monitor the situation. 
The South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry says government should urgently review its energy policy. The chamber's statement comes after power utility Eskom said its maintenance was four years behind schedule and was the contributing factor to the ongoing load shedding. Eskom has been battling with electricity supply due to ongoing technical failures. The chamber's CEO, Niran Rao. Well, I think the primary area of focus should be the fact that Eskom has for a long time warned that maintenance is a problem, maintenance is a risk. And now we are seeing the consequence of not being able to adhere to a stringent maintenance program. Uh, And also from a government perspective, I think it's important that government reviews its total energy policy, uh, which looks at the total energy mix. Uh, And I think that's where we need to turn our attention for the foreseeable future. Hospital doctors in Zimbabwe have warned that they will embark on strike again if threats to cut their monthly salaries by one-third are carried out. The Zimbabwe Hospital Doctors Association says doctors working at an unnamed hospital in Harare have been told that their December salaries will be cut to $86 from about $244 a month. This is because they took part in a strike over low pay last month. Doctors at the state hospitals, mainly in Harare and Bulawayo, went on strike in October. Globalization has come to the aid of trade unions in Colombia, where activists often face the threat not just of harassment, but also detention, torture and assassination. By focusing on the headquarters of transnational companies operating in this repressive South American state, unions have begun to gain recognition and are growing. According to Colombian delegates to the UNI Global Union World Congress in South Africa's mother city of Cape Town, conditions remain difficult. International developer, manufacturer and distributor of pharmaceuticals, Merkin Corporation, says it will buy Cuba's Pharmaceuticals Incorporation for $8.4 billion plus assumption of debt, giving the major drug maker an entry into the market for drugs that combat so-called superbugs. The deal is the latest sign that larger pharmaceutical companies are turning their attention back to antibiotics after decades of low investment. The U.S. dollar trade 3.1155 South African Rand, 9.43 Botswana Pula, 6.29 in Zambia, 0.64 British Pound, 8.1 across the Eurozone. Gold won $201, Platinum $1227 an ounce, brand crude $65, 55 cents a barrel. Economic Update. Thank you, Tabiso. Our sports update up next with Msibudi Makura. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Danny Jordan, the president of the South African Football Association, says the association has unanimously agreed to extend Bayana Bayana coach Vera Pau's contract, despite a failure to fulfill her mandate of qualifying the team for their maiden World Cup. The Dutch coach fell short on her mandate when the team finished fourth at this year's Africa Women's Championship in Namibia. The top three finishers in this year's tournament were guaranteed a place in next year's World Cup in Canada. Dajan says the contract will run for a year. It was a unanimous decision. Look, of course, everybody knows that there were two issues for us. One, 
we said we had to to strengthen women coaches in South Africa so that we have a position that every woman team is coached by a woman coach. And, and so uh, Vera Powell had a two-fold mandate. One, she had to qualify for the World Cup in Canada, and two, uh, she had to employ South African assistants so that uh, they can, as, in, as soon as possible, become coaches from our junior teams to our senior team, Banyana Banyana. And while, of course, she obviously didn't qualify, uh, the view was that uh, notwithstanding the qualification, uh, it is a mission not complete and therefore we should uh, extend it and, and allow it to, to continue uh, for at least one year. Thomas Bach, the president of the International Olympic Committee, says the planned overhaul of the Olympic Games is crucial to ensure the world's biggest multi-sports events relevance and continued growth in a rapidly changing world. A day before the ROC session votes on the biggest changes for the Olympics in decades, Bach urged members to approve the 40 recommendations dubbed Agenda 2020, a project he initiated immediately after taking over back in September 2013. If we do not address these challenges here and now, we will be hit by them very soon. If we do not drive these changes ourselves, others will drive us to them. We want to be the leaders of change and not the object of change. If I would deliver this speech in a, in a theater, I would uh, perhaps say with an ironic smile, of course, to change or to be changed, that is the question. The overhaul indicates changes to the bidding process, making it easier, cheaper and more efficient for cities to launch a bid for the Olympics. Apart from the IOC shouldering part of the multi-million dollar cost of the Olympic bid, it also foresees a consultation period with potential candidates before their official submission of the bid to ensure no city drops out after bidding. This Olympic Agenda 2020 is like a jigsaw puzzle. Every piece, every recommendation has the same importance. Only when you put all these 40 pieces together, you see the whole picture. Just when people thought Olympic silver medalist Casta Semenya was down and out, the 23-year-old running sensation says this is far from the truth as injury has been blightening her career. Concerns further heightened about her career when Semenya did not partake in this year's Commonwealth Games in Glasgow, Scotland. Semenya says she has not been adversely affected by the speculation and her injury setbacks as she is itching to get back action everything happened for a reason so that setback maybe it, w- it was meant for me you know to, to to rest a bit you know but yeah i'm happy now i'm able to run again you know to dislocate a knee it's not easy to come back no surgery yeah i'm happy with where i am now but i'm looking forward you know to run maybe one race you know competitive you know looking forward to run maybe you know sub 40 i'll be happy Semenya has endured one of the toughest seasons of her career, setting her best time of the year when she clocked in at 2 hours and 2.66 seconds in Rome in June. She failed to go under the 1 hour 
59 seconds for the first time since 2009 when she won the world title and a national record of 1 hour and 55.45 seconds at the age of 18. Samia says it is important for her to rethink as well as to re-strategize. Yeah, of course, you know, you have to start from somewhere, you know. You can't expect, you know, to, to, to jump ahead us, you know. From injury, from how I ran, you know, 202, it's not that much bad, you know. So, yeah, I was happy with the with the way I ran and that's why I decided to, to tell, you know, to just call it off for, for a season then uh, rest and uh, join the, the new group. So at the moment we're starting from the beginning, you know, we're starting from the scratch. So yeah, we're building up, you know, hopefully by, by, by February, March, we'll be able to compete. Well, those are your sports news at the sound. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine at this hour. For myself, Lulu Gabu, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour of Africa Rise and Shine is... On the frequency 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to far west Africa is Diamond featuring Davido with number one.
Now show me how they 